welcome everyone to another one of our Ignatian conversations here as we are exploring the topic of philosophy, one that is integrally related to the study of theology and spirituality going way back to ancient times. I'm excited uh, today to have Dr. John Bella, English teacher, uh, Greek philosophy expert, uh, handwriter extraordinaire. That's a different podcast topic. Perhaps we'll get into it, but just talking about uh, philosophy and how philosophy, philosophical thinking, relates to discernment, to the process of, of how we make decisions, how we think about things. And I will turn it over to, to John now just to say a little bit about, uh, about who he is and how he comes to this topic of uh, philosophy and discernment. Yeah, well, thank you uh, for inviting me here. I'm really excited to be here and to enjoy uh, this, this topic and explore this conversation. Um, so, uh, you know, my background, of course, is more in Greek philosophy, but I also have a lot of, uh, a lot of experience teaching modern philosophy. And of course, a lot of that time period overlaps with Ignatius's own life period and, and some of the, the philosophical influences on um, his world. So when I first thought about this, when you first raised the topic, um, I kind of resisted going to the Greeks first because I wanted to really think about like, the language um, Ignatius uses like from his own day and how that would have been understood in his own context. And um, so I started with the word, you know, discernment and its Latin origin, um, discerno, which, uh, which as I was, you know, examining some of the history and etymology of that word, um, it uh, so it has it has one meaning that really is physically grounded. The the original verb that it comes from is cerno, c-e-r-n-o, and that means to sift or to separate. So it's almost like it, it actually um, has some roots uh, in kind of agricultural practices, right? So early agricultural practices when you needed to sift. Um, to find, you know, either separating the wheat from the chaff or um, needing to separate things, okay? And then uh, the dis uh, prefix um, adds to that the, the separation and the pulling apart of things, right? So when you're talking about discernment on a physical level, it really is an act of sifting through material and separating that material into categories. And then of course, that word kind of evolved and took on much more of a, an intellectual um, and abstract meaning. And it ended up being not just to separate, but really to categorize, to distinguish, and of course the word we have to discern. Um, and you know, I, I started looking and I found you know, some uh, some uh, you know, philosophers from around Ignatius's time. Rene Descartes, for example, um, is someone who, who really explored this concept of what is discernment um, and what should it be? What are its appropriate processes and how we undertake it? And uh, so, um, so my first way of trying to explore the idea was really just looking at like the language because like Ignatius was you know, a careful writer. And he chose his words carefully. And I think like when you're talking about discernment, when you go back to that original meaning of like to sift and separate, right? So um, when we think about, when, when we use discernment, you know, at Loyola, when we say, when we talk about it with our students or, you know, in prayers, 
when you're trying to understand, you know, what God's intentions are for you or what his will is for you, right? Um, you're trying to discern that. And, and we use this a lot in our colloquial speech at Loyola, you know, when somebody is thinking about a new project or a new job or opportunity, we say, you know, I'm going to let you discern and you decide what's best for you, right? That's, that's such a common part of our practice. Um, and I think it's really interesting to just kind of go back to those older agricultural origins and think that, and to realize that those early parts of discernment uh, or there's those early ideas of discernment are really like kind of creating a physical separation among matter and then sort of choosing out of that matter um, either what what you want or what's needed. Uh, and so, you know, just to, to kind of sum up that sort of etymological approach to, to thinking about this idea of discernment, Right. I mean, if, if you're talking, if you're going with this Ignatian idea of like God in all things, right? Um, there's all the, the, you know, the multitude of experience and sensation and perception and thought and idea. All those things come in, um, and you know, in many ways, can kind of overload you in a day. And the process of discernment is the process of slowing down and and sifting through everything that kind of came at you that day. Um, and then in that process of sifting, the, the, the goal or the hope is that some kind of understanding will be achieved, right? That you'll, you'll uncover a truth um, as you did your sifting and separating. So, so that was one of the first things I started thinking about, which, which is, you know, when Ignatius picks a word, like he's picking it with, I think, full awareness of the way philosophers are using it, the, the way other theologians are using it. I mean, I, you know, if I have more time, I mean, now I'm really curious. I want to pick up a, a concordance of Descartes and, uh, and Thomas, uh, Thomas Aquinas and, you know, start looking at other philosophers I know Ignatius would have, uh, would have been aware of or would have read um, and to, to see how they're also using that word um, and how they're kind of naturalizing it in philosophy. Um, but so that was kind of my first, uh, my first way of thinking about it was just like, where does that word come from? Why would you choose that? Um, and I thought it was really interesting to find that, that, and, and this is so common with so many words we get from, from Greek and Latin, right? They start with some kind of physical, um, concrete meaning, uh, often tied to like agriculture, maritime, you know, whatever, it, whatever was around them. And then it sort of evolves into a more philosophical, abstract, you know, intellectual process. Um, so, so that was kind of one of the first things I was thinking about. And, you know, just to, uh, and I'm not sure, you know, with your background in, in Ignatian philosophy and, and theology, um, you know, if that word, uh, if that word discernment and, discer uh, you know, discerno um, has some kind of the same, you know, resonance that, uh, that it maybe had in the classical world. You know, I, what makes me think of uh, in terms of that combination of that practical origin and reality and then the way it's kind of taken and used in philosophy is just within the Christian tradition itself, right? When we think about the way that Jesus talks in, in the Gospels and using all of these agricultural mm. uh, images, right, of uh, the seeds and the sower and um, there's, there's that imagery from a very rooted place that over time then, um, you know, uh, thinkers and ultimately academics kind of looked at and say, okay, well, how do we 
parse these things? What do they really mean? Um, how do we draw and create a philosophy that's also grounded in these truths about uh, who God is and how the spirit acts? I think it's a real interesting um, similarity in what you're talking about in that root of discernment and how much it ties to those realities of life that we as modern people can often feel so uh, disconnected with. And also that it would have been, as you're indicating, layered in, in the experience of Ignatius so that he early on, you know, as somebody kind of drawn to the court life and everything would have had kind of a general courtly type of education. But then later in life, through his own personal experiences uh, and desire to find God, ended up taking a more traditional kind of academic route and ultimately uh, would have spent those years first studying in Spain, but ultimately then in Paris and having to, you know, going through and studying Aquinas and really being introduced to those, um, that the history of that kind of philosophical thought. Um, for, for those who aren't familiar with that kind of tradition, it was, you know, philosophy was viewed in this Christian system as, as kind of in service of the kind of theology, this knowledge of God as kind of the, the highest form of knowledge, but philosophy is really the, the method that helps people to think critically and to have the concepts so that we can fully understand that, that knowledge of theology. And to your point, John, I think that um, it was, what does philosophy help us do? It helps us uh, pay attention to the terminology. Mm -hmm. It us go very deeply into making little, what can seem like little distinctions, but often are so telling uh, for kind of insight. And even in the times when Ignatius would not have been so much of an academically trained person in his time in the, in the cave of Manresa, where he's kind of reflecting on the movements of the spirit, nonetheless, he was very attentive to individual words, as mm -hmm. you indicate. One of the prayers in the spiritual exercises advocates people praying by simply praying slowly and meditatively one word at a time through a prayer like the Our Father, right? Mm -hmm. So Ignatius was somebody who knew that in each word, in each concept, there was that opportunity to kind of open up into deeper meanings. And in, as you're saying, in that process of sifting through, whether it's a particular word or the experiences of our life, we can find a lot more richness than we might otherwise anticipate. Well, and you know, as you say that, it really reminds me of our, our practice of the examine. Um, you know, so often the examine starts with, you know, looking back on the last 24 hours and, and really thinking and, and just seeing like sort of what images come to you, right? But then the next questions are, you know, how did you find God in those moments? Or where was God present? Or what was God suggesting to you? Well, that's a process of sifting through the, the absolute like immense variety of our experience, right? And of course, like the examine requires you to be able to slow down. I mean, I, I think, you know, the examine is necessary because life comes at you so fast, you don't really have the chance. To, I mean, discernment is not a kind of real-time activity, you know? Mm. Um, it, it's almost something that it, it, it's necessarily reflective, but also it's also necessarily forward-looking too, right? I mean, uh, you know, the examine again, you know, it looks back on the last 24 hours and looks ahead to the next 24, right? So 
as I sift through what happened in my last 24 hours, how can that help me to be better ready to judge and discern, you know, what I want to do in my next 24 hours, right? Like that to me seems um, like a really essential part of the examine and it's that slowing down, right? Mm -hmm. That th this is time devoted and, you know, as I, I hear so many different versions of the examine from, you know, we, we get usually 40 versions a year, either when you combine Advent and Lent. And um, whether, it's, uh, whether it's somebody saying, imagine your, your last day yesterday as a movie and you're watching all the scenes and they just keep, you know, one after the other, they just keep piling upon one after the other, right? And there's no real opportunity to sift it while you're experiencing. Um, so, so yeah, I just think that that, that slowing down period and, uh, and it's something that we really have to educate ourselves to do, right? It's, um, and this is actually where w once I, I got through the idea of the, uh, the, the Latin root and the sifting and the agricultural metaphor, which I, I love that you bring up that, um, you know, that connection to, to Christian theology and just like using parables as modes of instruction, right? Like, there's something very natural about trying to explain some, to someone a, a high, you know, um, an, an abstract concept like discernment by saying, oh, well, it's, it's like sifting grain, right? Um, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of the, the parable about like where the seeds fall on the, you know, on the rocky soil or the health, you know, the, the good soil or trampled on the road, right? Like that's a, that's a way of making a very abstract idea of salvation or redemption or personal growth, like very concrete to people. And, and so um, as we were, as you were talking about that, that was, that part of the discernment really then brought me back to the Greeks and the Greek concept of practical wisdom um, as opposed to theoretical wisdom, right? Theoretical wisdom, according to the Greeks, like according to Plato and Aristotle, theoretical wisdom would have been knowledge that you acquire with no intent to apply. It has no application. It is merely for the sake of pure understanding. Right. And so all the theoretical sciences, you know, Aristotle and Plato would put, you know, math, geometry, they would even put things like uh, physics up there um, as a uh, as a theoretical science. That way you do it for pure understanding. Um, but ethics is a practical wisdom. It's a wisdom that combines theoretical understandings of you know human nature and and uh and our natural environment and it applies those theoretical principles to specific practical situations you face right um and i think you know the the conversation we had a while ago with uh with mr marsh and mr brown about um about being contemplative in action i i thought really connected to what we're talking about here today too um you know the, the when we talked about contemplative in action we talked about the ways in which contemplation and action are often seen as opposed but that ignatian spirituality gives you that key in right and that you know i remember mr marsh remarking that um that that was the bridge between the contemplation on the one hand and action on the other that the in is what takes our theoretical and abstract and has and forces us to bring it into the world right and 
when I think about you know discernment in in Jesuit thought, um, it is it is incomplete if it remains merely on the level of abstract principle and reasoning. The whole the whole goal of discernment is to take that those abstract first principles and to see how does it, how does it apply in this practical situation that I really face, right? And I, I think that. For me, that's always been the richest part uh, or one of the, the richest aspects of Ignatian theology is like just the, the repeated insistence on returning to the world, right? Returning to, you know, meeting people where they are. Um, that discernment is not something that's going to help you when, you know, you're isolated in, you know, in the cave contemplating. It's something that you bring out of the cave with you and into the world. Um, and so it, uh, so as we were, you know, as I was thinking about this conversation, I was really reflecting back to, wow, that, that contemplative in action, um, you know, really has a meaningful connection to this idea of discernment. And, uh, and it seems to me that, you know, discernment, when, when we talk about Ignatius, and I think the, you know, when you were talking about uh, Aquinas uh, seeing philosophy as like, as a handmaiden, to theology. I, I, I seem to remember him using some kind of metaphor like that, that philosophy is like a handmaiden to theology. Um, but it's an incomplete handmaiden if it doesn't help us to act and live better, right? And so to me, the, uh, the process of discernment just, you know, it can't stop at the theoretical, right? It, it necessarily continues to the practical, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and it, you know, we can explore further how that relates to, um, you know, Aristotle's conception of practical wisdom and his ethics. But, um, but at the outset, that, that really seemed to me a, a deep connection that, um, you know, we, all, we often, you know, discernment is such a cerebral verb. It's such, a, it's such an abstract intellectual verb that we forget that, we, or at least sometimes we can forget that the final step of the process is a doing. Right. There was a discerning, which is itself a kind a kind of activity. But then there's a doing based on that discernment. There's now a way I need to live, a way I need to behave, a way I need to treat others. Um, that is the result of that discernment. When I, I think when we think of the practical application, which is absolutely such an important part of what um, is involved in the process, and I think sometimes as you're saying like the term itself doesn't always illuminate uh because it, it seems so removed it seems so theoretical discernment such a big you know word and um but that's why i love this idea of like this imagery of sifting of sorting of noticing um i often like to think in terms of uh, you know like like where's the energy where's the pull where's the you know and when you think about it that this is the type of knowledge that is only acquired through the application. So for example, let's say, you know, you're, you're sifting through something, it's grain or other stuff. You could sit down and you could tell someone, this is the right kind of thing that we're looking for. And you describe it and it's color and it's shape. And this is what we don't want, right? You describe it to someone. Well, until they sit down and, and actually sifting between the two, that knowledge is not actualized in any meaningful way, right? And through the process of the actual sifting, uh, 
greater knowledge is accumulated because you get a better sense of what that color actually looks like in real life or that shape or that. Um, to give a different example, I had recently um, completed a puzzle. And um, when I do a puzzle, I have a, a process, you know, that I'll, I'll begin and I'll, I'll, I'll sift the, the different parts. Uh, I'll do all the edges first and create the frame to give it a certain structure, right? Uh, to kind of know the parameters. And then I'll sift by color or by shape. And over the process of that time of spending time with the puzzle, the, the colors that might have, oh, that's all blue. Over time, I'll get a better sense of, oh, that's a particular kind of shade of blue. And this is a different shade of blue. So that I'll be able to distinguish more as a result of the practice and attention that I'm going through in, in that particular instance. The same, I think, Ignatius saw is true in the spiritual life. The more that we pay attention through structured ways of prayer uh, or reflection like the examine or other practices that we might have, the more we're able to pay attention to those things in our life and sift to say, you know, where is the energy? Where, where is, where am I brought alive? Uh, where, where is God? And to notice those, both those objective events and what they do and how they resonate in us, the more that we do it, the better we develop our ability to make this, to do this sifting, to make this discernment. Um, so it is this kind of knowledge that is only actualized in the practice of it. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's exactly what, you know, someone like Aristotle would say about practical wisdom is it's, it's knowledge that is specifically only gained through doing. No, nobody has, nobody has theoretical knowledge of how to build a, a you know, a house, right? You, you learn how to build houses by doing it well. Um, you can also become a, a bad builder by repeatedly building houses poorly, right? Like um, I always like, I, you know, I, I teach a couple pages from Aristotle to all my classes just because I, and I, I try to connect it to the graduate at graduation idea, just that, that really what Ignatian spirituality and formation is about is teaching you to be better at discerning. Um, and, you know, I, I've had a lot of talks with uh, our Dean, Mr. Anarelli about, you know, his challenges at helping students to form and become better at discerning. And, you know, to be Dean is to help kids learn to be discerning, but also to understand that sometimes they discern incorrectly and, or they discerned well, but made the wrong choice anyway, or it, it's something that we continually have to get better at and practice. Um, I, I joke with my students, like, you know, in, in the summers, I like to, uh, I like to do very concrete things too, uh, uh, rather than theoretical. Um, rather than reading books all summer long, I often pick up building projects. You know, last summer I built a playhouse for my kids. Uh, the summer before that, I built a, uh, an outdoor enclosure for our cats. It's called a catio. That's what I call it. Um, the, the cats really enjoy it. Um, but, and, and so people have asked me before, like, wow, you really seem to like building stuff. You know, are you pretty good at it? And I say, well, no, actually... I've never been trained at it. I do it all by myself and I consistently do it rather poorly, you know? Um, and it's a practical wisdom, but well, it's a practical experience, I guess, but it's not one that I consistently get very good at. Mm -hmm. I try to be better, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's uh, a case where 
you know, by, by cutting the same piece of wood and trying to do a, a right angle, you know, 50 times, if I did it wrong 50 times, I didn't get any better at the process, right? Um, Aristotle goes through a lot of examples like that of, you know, people who, um, people who, uh, you know, learn to play the lyre. Um, but if you, and the only way to get good at playing is to play it. Mm. But if you consistently play it poorly, well, you're gonna, you're gonna habituate yourself into the kind of person who is poor at that kind of a task. Um, and likewise with discernment. I mean, I, I think there are ways that you can discern poorly, mm. right? Um, one of the most common ways, at least when I think about in, in our experience with students, one of the most common ways is I think when students discern from the wrong first principles, mm. right? Like, um, so often we try to, to help our, our young men get out of their own self-centered, you know, focus, right? To get out of their narcissism. Um, because if, if you're consistently discerning from a first principle of what is best for me without any sort of way of considering others and your impact on others, well, yes, you're discerning, but you're consistently leading yourself to a bad outcome, right? You're consistently leading yourself to... Um, to something that is, is other than what is good for you, right? Um, so I, I do think that, you know, when in our work in education, we, it, it's so process oriented that we're teaching them about the process of the discernment, okay? And, you know, I, I'm actually going through this experience a lot with my students right now. I've got 50 seniors who are trying to decide on colleges right now. And this is a process of discernment. And, it's, it's one where, okay, I have to check in with them at different stages, all right? So first of all, have you kind of, you know, felt the pull or the energy, as you say, right? Where, where is the energy or the pull? Is there, you know, and, and that's kind of like doing an examine, you know, think back to your experiences on these, camp, these campuses. Which ones called out to you more? Which ones maybe felt like you, you, you didn't belong there or you didn't want to be there? Um, but then after that process of the just... Uh, the the collecting in of the aggregating of all the data and experience, then there's the sifting through it. And, and sometimes you're, you know, so I, I can help students with that first part. Well, let's first collect all the data. Second, let's kind of sift through it and see what stands out to you and calls to you. And then finally, let's think about how we can act on that. Um, so it is, it is such a process. Um, it's one that I, I think one of the great things, at least I've learned as a teacher at Loyola is, you know, the, the Jesuits there share so much about their own experience with the spiritual exercises. Um, and they share so much with their experience with the examine that it helps us to see that discernment uh, isn't, isn't easy. Um, we are not always perfect, right? We are flawed creatures you know, trying to discern what's best in a, in a rather messy world. Um, because otherwise I think, you know, at least for my students, the process of discernment can feel kind of intimidating sometimes. Mm -hmm. They can feel like they fail at it a lot, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there needs to be a way to help students understand, and people, right, mm -hmm. uh, understand, you know, that failure is part of that process, but that we get better at that process, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm better at it now than I was before. I ask my seniors, uh, you know, at the end of Lent, I was, I usually do this. I didn't get to do it this year because we were stopped, but I always ask my students like, compare your examines now 
to the first exams you went through in Advent of your freshman year, mm. right? Like, how have you progressed in terms of your understanding of the exam and how does it feel to you now? Do you feel, are there parts of it that are more useful to you? Mm. Um, and, you know, it encourages, I think, some helpful reflection on their parts, which is that I've gotten a little better at this, right? right? I'm better at discerning. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that, that kind of connects to me, the, this larger idea of how it's a practical wisdom, it's a process, it's an activity. Um, and, and I think that's why for both, whether you're talking Ignatius or Jesus or Aristotle, the underlying metaphors or analogies for this process are all fundamentally physical, mm. right? And uh, whether it's Aristotle talking about working out or building or playing music or singing, um, whether it's Jesus in the parables, you know, that just, it, it all comes down to this kind of root level of this is a, a, a physical process that we've sort of adapted and internalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's where we end up with this, this practical application of, of these first principles. Right. And then ultimately then it's, it's, a, it's a way of life that we are engaged in, you know, that sometimes I think the, the issue with uh, in the pressure around a decision, making a decision or discernment is it can feel like um, it's just about making a decision, you know, it's, it's just about, let's say, uh, and there's many different types, but like the example you're giving of, you know, like which college I'm going to go to, which is a very, you know, substantial decision, often one of the biggest decisions that high school seniors have faced before. Um, but that it's not like a math problem to be solved where we get all the data and if we apply the formula the right way, we'll come up with the right result and then everything will be good and we'll be set. But rather it's, a, it's an example of a process that we're going through, which is part of the process of living itself. So that we needed to be grounded in, in the right orientation of where we're headed, the first right principles about what we're seeking in life. And that then when confronted with different examples of choice uh, and process, we were able to apply those practices, which uh, we've not only learned in terms of a, an idea or a concept, but, but have actually uh, lived out in, in what we've done, as you're saying, you know, that we've become better. And that in that process, as in any practical progress, uh, process, uh, failure, uh, imperfection, mistakes are part of it. If we fear the mistake, uh, we're also shutting ourselves off from the opportunity to learn. Uh, And also, I'll just reiterate, too, I think a point that you made is so important to understand that uh, all repetition does not lead to wisdom. Uh, Some repetition of mistakes (laughs) leads to ingrained habits that are not leading us on the right path. So that that role of both being self-reflective and also getting uh, wisdom, mentorship, uh, insight from others is such an important part. If we're not able to to have our process and progress uh, informed by the wisdom of others, uh, we're also missing something very important because we don't need to seek out this path as if it's never been uh, walked down before. We can learn from the examples of others, whether it's teachers or or other mentors or guides is such an important part. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because that, that was actually a, a question I, I have about how Ignatius might um, 
suggests that, that we improve our discernment because, so if, I, if we take Aristotle as an example, the way you achieve practical wisdom, first of all, is you find people that we all agree exhibit it. You find models, as you're saying, you find mentors, you find people who can help you through the process. Um, so, and, and the, the idea, the reason why that's so radical um, in philosophy, that, that that suggestion is so radical from Aristotle is because first of all, he's telling you that, that there is no perfect ideal, right? There, there isn't some theoretical ideal of the perfectly discerning person, just like there is no theoretical ideal of, you know, the absolutely flourishing life or the perfect or, flir the perfect or ideal flourishing life. All there are, all that we have to go on in this, you know, in this material world is the examples and models of those who we can all look to and say, they seem to have done this well, right? So when Aristotle says, let's find out what, uh, let's find out how to get to eudaimonia. Let's find out how to get to the flourishing life. Well, the only place to start for him is we need to find the people we think have gotten to it and learn from them. What did they do, right? Um, and Aristotle takes that down to a very practical level. Like, if you want to be courageous, you need to find the courageous people and start to do what they do and habituate in yourself the responses and behaviors that a courageous person would have. If you want to have a moderate and even temperament, well, you need to go out and find the people who exhibit and model that temperament. Um, so, you know, the, the, the question I have, and as I'm, you know, thinking about this with you, is, you know, when we talk about discernment, you know, do we, um, do we also, would, would Ignatius, for example, suggest that we look to models? Like, are there models of people that we can say have discerned well in their lives, right? Um, what are the, what are the criteria? I mean, the, the only, one reason I ask that question, and to me, it's, it's more puzzling than it would be for the Greeks is because, you know, the, the Greeks wouldn't have tried, or at least Aristotle wouldn't have tried to ground it in a moral concept of the divine, mm. right? The, the concept of eudaimonia was, for Aristotle, almost entirely explained as a biological phenomenon. It is, it is the, the particular flourishing of each individual species and what its purpose and its telos is, right? So there really isn't this, con this underlying moral dimension of, you know, the goodness of the world or the goodness of the divine. Um, so when Aristotle says we should look to models, he says that because, you know, that's all there is, right? Um, and, you know, with, with Ignatius, I'm sure, right, certainly Jesus is a kind of model. Mm -hmm. um, he's a hard model for us to all reach because, you know, he's not entirely mm -hmm. like us. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, I, I really do, like, you know, I mean, I really wonder, you know, with, with, with a first principle that's more grounded in a divine theology um, and a, a sense of a, a, an inherent moral goodness in the universe that we are intended to strive for, mm. like, I, I really wonder. So if, if you were to ask Ignatius, like, how can I become better at discerning? Would he say, like, well, here are the models, like the way Aristotle would have said? Well, I think that uh, there's three things that uh, three 
elements, I guess, that come to mind um, with that question. Um, first, I think is just the, the relational component. So in terms of our relationship with, with other people as guides. Um, so the spiritual exercises that St. Ignatius came up with were never meant to be kind of like a, something that you just read on and do on your own. They were always meant as a guide that actually the notes that what we have as the spiritual exercises were actually guides for the person uh, who was kind of leading someone else through the retreat. It was kind of notes for the retreat director. So the implication is that you're always in relationship with someone else who is leading you through this exercise. So the very process of Ignatian discernment um, always involves working with someone else in kind of conversation. So there's always that relational component. It's not necessarily saying that that other person who's guiding you through the exercises is a model necessarily, but rather a conduit for um, discernment and relationship. So that's the one piece. It's the kind of human to human uh, relationship that's there. Second, the exercises, the spiritual exercises themselves are structured around the life of Christ. So that's the, the main kind of content trajectory that you're there. So the model that's always presented to us is um, kind of the, the life of Jesus. And it's played out as not just, it is, you know, it, it, Jesus is held up as a model, but then we're also comparing him with other different types of human experiences. So different types of, uh, you know, uh, examples of how humans react in different circumstances and imagining ourselves as different, let's say, apostles or followers of Jesus in those scriptural scenes, right? So another way we flesh out the experience of what it is to, to make a decision is done through an imaginative exercise of placing ourselves in different kind of human positions, not necessarily imagining ourselves as what would Jesus do, that's certainly a component of it, but what would, you know, how did Peter act and how would I act or how, you know, did one of the other disciples or followers act and how would that be within this overarching framework of Jesus? The third element is that that, that's, that's using kind of the historical Jesus and the historical followers of Jesus as examples. But the implication of the spiritual exercises is always that God is active now. That you're not referring to some historical exemplar or model, but that the whole process is listening to the spirit, listening to the spirit of God, which is active in the world in each of us now. And so what the... Uh, human, you know, retreat director or guide is doing is not kind of giving human wisdom to you, uh, but rather helping you create the parameters so that you can most fully listen to the spirit of God, a spirit whose truth we can test by comparing it to the historical example of Jesus. Meaning, if you're getting pulled or drawn to do things which are completely not in alignment with what we know the historical Jesus taught, then that's probably not the spirit of God. It's probably mm -hmm. some other spirit, right? So it, it's, I'd say there's those elements or components in a way, you know, both this understanding that the God is at work at all times, and there's a spirit that we can know through our own process of kind of sorting, 
we have the example of Jesus through the gospels that we can use as kind of a guide or a check to what that spirit might be inviting us to. And then that we're learning from the guidance of the imperfect uh, people that are around us, but who themselves are seeking to follow the spirit. That's actually, that's really a helpful way to think about it. Um, especially the relational part, you know, when I came back to Loyola to teach now 13 years ago, I, I started, I mean, the, the language we use to help train teachers is so much more intentional than what I experienced as a student. I, like, I honestly don't know if I ever heard the word discernment in quite this context. We didn't, you know, I, I'm sure all the Jesuit instructors I had, they were teaching it to us, but we never were quite as explicit um, with using that term as, as we have been since I've been a teacher. And I, I remember at first being puzzled when I'd hear people talk about how they were discerning and their process of discerning involved a lot of going around and talking to others. Mm. And, you know, me, like coming from my background in philosophy, like, wait, wait, I, I thought discernment was like Rene Descartes in his room with his, you know, his, uh, his dressing gown on and his snifter of brandy. And, you know, he's discernment is me alone. Right. And it, it really, it, that part of discernment seemed a little bit intimidating, honestly. Right. And very isolating. It was like, no, 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 stay away from me. I'm discerning. Right. Which is a very weird thing to, to think, but that's the, the impression I came in with. And then as I started to, you know, through, through some of the Ignatian instruction that we would do for first, second, third year faculty, I started realizing like, wow, this process of discernment is a lot more relational than I thought it was. Like it has to do with going to other people and sounding them out and sort of trying to understand as you, you, you know, you use the terms, the energy or the pull, um, trying to understand from other people what their experience was like when they tried to discern in a similar situation, right? Again, as you say, it's not that they've perfected it, but it's that they've practiced it, right? They've tried and they're, where I, I can at least be confident that they're aiming for the same goal, right? Um, that they want to, to hit the mark. Um, and so that relational aspect of discernment, I think is, uh, is really helpful. It's been very helpful and rewarding for me as a teacher to receive it from mentors. And now I feel like I've been here long enough that there are newer teachers that I kind of help in that way. Um, and there's also, of course, the way we help our students in that process, right? I mean, some of our students might think that discernment is supposed to be, you know, whether it's choosing colleges or, you know, a major or whatever it is, um, that that's supposed to be an isolated undertaking. Um, and the relational component is, is just so crucial to that. Um, and you're right, like, you know, the, the way you put it earlier, this idea of we don't have to walk this path anew every time, right? The path has been trod. It, it, it continues to be walked, right? People continue to walk the path. Um, that's why I think when you were mentioning how, you know, for Ignatius, he would say that God is still active in today's world and that we can still find exemplars and models today. Well, you know, Aristotle was, was really, uh, really emphasized the point, like when we're looking for the flourishing life, don't look back to Odysseus or Agamemnon. Like, we need to find them here and now, because this is the here and now where we're trying to flourish. Um, and so those historical examples, 
you know, they have a value, but what we really need to see is who's able to do it now? Who's able to discern in a way that leads to what we can call practical wisdom, right? Someone who, who took in all the inputs, um, applied their experiential knowledge that they'd gained through years of experience, and then um, made a decision. You know, just one, one last thought I was having is, uh, as you were talking about those three methods, um, uh, or those three, those, those three components um, of the, uh, the Ignatian discernment, you know, one thing Aristotle says about practical wisdom is that it's, it's not the kind of wisdom anybody can be a prodigy in, mm. right? In theoretical wisdom, there are sometimes mathematical, geometrical prodigies, people who are just wise way beyond their age. But he said, that's impossible for practical wisdom because it's not a theoretical knowledge. It's not something you can have before the experience of actually applying it. So that always, um, that always like was reassuring to me in a way to say like, hey, no, no, you don't have to be good at this yet. To, to say to my students, like you don't have to be good yet. Nobody is a prodigy of discerning well because you just haven't done enough sifting. You don't have enough experience. Um, and you haven't yet applied your decisions to enough life experience. So that right there is a very humbling way to think about practical wisdom and discernment, right? Nobody's born good at it. Nobody's a prodigy of it. Um, and that right there, like, you know, both for the Greeks and for Ignatius, I think is, is a real call to humility a real call, as you were saying a moment ago, to understand that failure is a part of this process and that failure is a part of how we move forward. Um, but just that idea of, you know, you know, and Aristotle, he makes it, he, he can be so witty when he wants to be. Um, but, you know, he says, we often talk about, you know, we, we often talk about prodigies and math and science and geometry. And there's a reason why we don't talk about that with practical wisdom. It's because they haven't had the experience yet. It's just that simple, right? No, it's so true, you know, in both a, a point to humility and also of, you know, grace and opportunity that, uh, you know, we, when we haven't figured out yet, it's an invitation that we need to keep sifting, that we keep, need to keep trying, that there is also this wisdom that can be learned, uh, but it takes time. And that's why we engage in conversations like this. It's because through uh, additional conversations, no matter how much we might know about something or have gone through it in our own life, there's always more to be learned uh, by going deeper, by engaging, by hearing other voices. Um, because so much of it is just about the extent that we've sifted and the experiences that we've heard and learned from. Yeah, you know, and as you say that, it, it really makes me think about why we value things like uh, diversity of opinion and experience, right? Um, you know, if, if we improve in our practical wisdom and our discernment by learning from others, um, then part of what we're learning from them is their unique range of experience and their unique temperament and how they, how they come to things, right? Like, um, if I only ever listen to people whose life experience is largely like my own, um, you know, whether it's of my own gender, of my own background, class, educational level, my 
my growth in discernment is going to be like fundamentally limited, right? I'm just not learning from all the kinds of people who are doing discernment, you know? Um, and, uh, and just, you know, the way you're talking about it there just really makes me think about why it's so important to not just have one mentor or one mentor who's a mirror image of you, but to sometimes, you know, have mentors who can be antagonists towards you, right? Or um, whose experience feels so fundamentally different from your own, but there's something to be learned from that, right? Um, so, and, uh, and certainly, you know, we, we can look in the Bible and the New Testament, and there, there's all kinds of examples of, you know, people of differing backgrounds, you know, whether it's, you know, Paul's conversions, or, you know, there, there's just a lot of people who, you know, weren't, the, the message was never meant to just all apply to one kind of person, right? Um, discernment is not meant to be a, um, a practical skill for one kind of person, right? And so um, I, I can just think about the ways in my own experience that I was limited by the range of people who were mentors to me, right? One, one great thing about coming back to Loyola is the, the broader range of mentors I've been able to learn from um, and be able to see like, oh, wow, that's how they discerned in that situation. Like that's their decision-making there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how they arrived at, um, at a good decision for them. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that, that's, it's really interesting to think about, you know, the, the ways in which, um, you know, even, even when we talk about that relational component, that we want to be as broad as possible in our approach to that and as, as inclusive as possible. I, I think about that even in my own classroom, right? I mean, if, if I'm teaching 20 guys of roughly the same temperament, the same kind of background, um, then there's a real blind spot that we're all sharing, right? And one of the magical aspects of, I think, a Loyola classroom, whether, well, whether it's a Loyola classroom, a Loyola Kairos retreat group, or a freshman retreat big brother group, is like the diversity and range of not just temperament, um, but experience, background, all those things make us unique and, and make us uh, uniquely valuable to others in the way we can, you know, offer our own experience as a lesson. You know, I, I, I often, I often have to tell my students that that sometimes they just assume that other people perceive and feel things and respond to things the same way they do. Right? I mean, this is kind of the the natural self-centeredness and narcissism of of youth and adolescence, and getting them outside of that and helping them to, to think about the ways others respond and the way other temperaments are situate or are, are predisposed to certain, um, to certain inclinations or tendencies um, and how those are shaped sometimes by forces well beyond our control, right? Um, with our, our parents, our upbringing, all those different, all those different forces. Um, so it, it just, it, you know, it, it really helps me to, to see why we do have that as a value, right? Um, and over the years, you know, I can see the way Loyola has progressed in terms of our inclus inclusiveness, not just towards, um, 
not, not just in terms of class and race and ethnicity, but also in terms of gender and in terms of our, our understanding and recognition that, you know, there are, uh, there are different perspectives and experiences um, that we can learn from. And if, if the, the sort of prototypical experience is always the male educated, you know, uh, middle to upper class experience, well, that's a, that's a blind spot, right? Um, and you're missing things. Um, so uh, it, it just, it, it kind of occurred to me as you were saying that, that we, we really can see a justification for why inclusivity, diversity, openness, the, the sort of James Joyce idea of Catholicism, right? Like here comes everybody, right? And like when everybody comes, like, well, then we have the opportunity to learn from everybody because we're, we're just getting everybody's experience. No, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think that's a great point to kind of bring our, our conversation here kind of to, to conclusion in, in terms of that open invitation that this discernment, that this process is, is a invitation to everyone and it needs everyone. It yeah. needs this uh, diversity. It needs to be, uh, include all these perspectives because that is what helps us to fully appreciate all the elements involved in the process and the diversity of ideas and opinions. It's perhaps part of the reason why Jesuits were able to become so successful at discernment because they went out as missionaries to all the parts of the world and were able to see in very concrete ways the diversities of, of cultures and experience and to bring that back into their own process. Um, any final thoughts as we kind of bring our time together to, to, to conclusion? You know, one last thought was, uh, was just the, when we were talking about um, the, the process of discernment um, and the way it can sometimes lead to failure or success, um, it, it really reminded me of, of just how important that Jesuit value of reflection is, right? Um, discernment's not something you figure out and then you're done with, right? It's like, oh, no, no, I, I figured out how to discern in my 30s. And so I've, I've got that down, right? Like that, that's nonsensical to anybody who knows what we're, we're talking about here. Um, and so, like I, you know, whenever we talk about whether it's the Ignatian pedagogical paradigm, you know, the, the last part of it is always reflection, okay? Let me look back on, let me look back on my process of discernment in this situation, right? Um, whether it's, you know, thinking about, am I gonna get married? Am I gonna go to this college? Am I going to, take this job off or whatever it is that I, I think sometimes we we have to tell ourselves and tell our students that it's part of their formation that you know you're always going to have you're always going to be able to reflect on processes of discernment and to learn from those mm -hmm. not to not to reflect on them with this with this um, kind of eye for criticism or nitpicking or like let me let me let me reflect and regret right that's that I think is the wrong approach to reflection but to really reflect and say like how do how did I do here like did I did I live up to my own goals and standards for discernment did I um, and so I just think that you know we when we talk about the process there's that the, the aggregating of everything coming in the sifting it the applying it and then the reflecting upon it you know, and, and to me, it really mirrors the, the Ignatian pedagogical uh, uh, paradigm, which is starts with 
you know, we start with experience, right? What do your students already know about something? What have they already taken in? Um, then you give them a chance to, then you instruct them on it, and then they have to sort of experiment and they have to do something with it, right? They have to apply. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, after that, they then reflect. So let's reflect on this whole process, right? Um, so it's almost, uh, my, my students would tell me here, I'm getting a little too meta, right? Because I'm, I'm talking about discerning about your process of discernment, but like I, I think our process, uh, process of discernment is something that requires our reflection to just say like, am I doing this well? Am I getting better at it? Um, and uh, am I leading in a direction I wanna be going? And, uh, and so I think that, you know, to me, like one of my great rewards working at Loyola and working with, with students like this and working with colleagues like you is, is getting to see this just wonderful synthesis of Ignatian theology and Ignatian pedagogy, right? Like it just makes you feel like we are all, we always have these first principles to fall back on. Like I, I'm never gonna err that badly in my discernment because, and I'm never gonna err that badly in my pedagogy because boy, do I have like just outstanding foundational principles to fall back on, whether it's, the Ignatian pedagogical paradigm, whether it's the graduate graduate uh, graduation virtues, um, whatever it is, like those first principles are so reassuring, um, and to know that they just they make sense, right? Like, I I don't have to think about a whole different kind of Ignatius when I'm talking about spirituality versus when I'm talking about pedagogy. It's the same Ignatius. It's the same approach to the world, to learning, to experience. Um, and it just, boy, it makes it easier to teach to students, uh, for one thing. And it just, it just makes it, I think, easier to understand and apply in your own life. Well, absolutely, John. I think it's, it's part of the gift that we have that we're able to kind of come together to have these conversations and learn from one another as we, as we deepen in this process. Um, well, thank you very much for, for taking the time today. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. I encourage all those who are, who are watching that this is just a, an entry into this topic and that only uh, the depth is only learned through the actual practice. So we invite and encourage all the diversity of voices to come into this conversation as well and invite people to leave comments, questions, and to seek out for yourself um, how these things are so interconnected this invitation to sift, uh, to put into practice, and then to reflect and evaluate uh, what there is to learn. So thank you very much for being with me, uh, John. And uh, we'll- Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Excellent.